Okay, we are continuing this morning in our study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, we, I just want to say this uh, before I go any further while I'm thinking about it, and that is this, some of you may be a little bit confused because I'm not always preaching chapter by chapter. Okay. Uh, you may not realize it, but in the original text, there weren't chapter divisions. There weren't verse numbers. It was just constant, continue writing. And what happened eventually is it was the, the scriptures were broken down into verses, and, uh, and those verses sometimes broken down into chapters. But they were done by fallible people. Not, this, this is not part of the inerrancy of scripture. <laughs> Something that, that people did at one point or another. We don't even know who did it, when it was done, how it was done, or anything like that. If it was a group of folks that did it or, or whatever. But we understand it is a very helpful and useful tool that we have for working through the scriptures. Especially when we're trying to share things with other people. And we can refer them to particular books and to particular chapters in those books and particular verses in those books. But sometimes, and I think this is really uh, kind of a hallmark in the book of Hebrews, there's a few times where you wonder why in the world the chapter break is where it is. <laughs> it doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to belong. And so I don't want that to throw you off because sometimes I am preaching from chapter to chapter, but sometimes I'm breaking them because some of the material that's in one chapter really belongs in the next chapter or vice versa. But you need to understand that has nothing to do with the inerrancy and infallibility of the word of God. Nothing at all to do with that. These chapter things are strictly a human invention to help us and they really are very helpful. But I just don't want that to throw you off because sometimes I'm preaching through a chapter and other times I'm taking a little chunk here and a little chunk there. And that's why. Uh, so, let me read chapter 5, verse 11 to chapter 6, verse 12. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God and of instruction about washings. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have raised or tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have raised the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. 
for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and nearer to being cursed, and it, its end is to be burned up. Though we speak in this way, yet in your eyes, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overtake or overlook your, your work and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Now, as we've experienced in this book of Hebrews, it's just, it is full. I mean, it's probably one of the most doctrinal books you're going to find in the whole Bible, you know, not just, the, not, not just the New Testament, but in the whole Bible. It is chock full of doctrine. It's teaching theology. And what the author is doing very often is correcting wrong understandings and misunderstandings and teaching people what the truth is. Just remember, the chapter divisions are just a man-made thing. And it works to our benefit. Concerning him, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull in your hearing. Actually, more accurately, what it says is become sluggish in your hearing. John Owen says this, that what is the intention here of the author is to say that you are slow to learn. In other words, you're satisfied to be where you are. You don't want to clutter your mind by learning new and greater and deeper things. Sluggish, lazy might be a good interpretation of this. And something that we probably note here is there seems to be a sense of frustration on the part of the writer. Because he's having to teach them over and over again the same basic things. Why would that be true? Partly is this, it's because they have been lazy in their study and their reading of the scriptures. It also seems that they've been satisfied with the milk and they haven't moved on to the meat of salvation. A scary thing is this. It seems as though they are depending on others to do all of their spiritual thinking for them. And as a consequence, they're satisfied being little children in their faith rather than growing up in that faith. Little children who have been taught the same things over and over and over again. Now, 
There will always be teachers. And we need to make sure that our teachers are truly called by God to be teachers. There are times when people just decide that they want to teach and they convince themselves through one reason or mechanism or another that God has called them to do that when in fact that hasn't been affirmed by anyone else. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but you need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Even though you should be in a, a spiritual and adult by this time, you continue and insist on being a spiritual baby, an infant. So why? Why in the world would a Christian, especially one who is in a position of teaching others, be resistant in the study and application of the scriptures? I came up with a few possibilities. One of those is actually takes time and effort to study the Word of God thoroughly and in depth. It takes time, it takes effort. And sometimes people are just lazy. That applies to me just as much as it does to everybody else. Sometimes we're just lazy. We think we have better things to do. What about this one? Maybe we were resistant to growing in, in, in our knowledge and understanding of things because we understand that it puts us in a place of greater accountability. The more you know, the more accountable you are. So it's more comfortable for us to stay where we're at. And what about this? And let's just be honest about it. Sometimes... Knowing and studying the scriptures just isn't a priority. We don't put the importance and significance on it that we really need to. One of the things we will be doing at Presbytery next week, I would assume, I haven't gotten the minutes yet, but it's been quite a while since we've had a Presbytery meeting where we were not... Uh, receiving a brother who or two that have been examined by the examining committee and have been approved for ordination. We do that almost every time. I personally believe this. As time has gone by, you know, I'm I know you get tired of me talking about this, but I served, you know, on the examining committee most of my tenure as a pastor. There are a lot of guys that are preaching, teaching elders in our presbytery that I was in their ordination examination. And when you do that, you actually develop somewhat a relationship, the lasting relationship with these people as you go through the years. 
I, I love to go Presbyterian. One of the reasons I get to see all the guys that I've served with on that particular committee. There's one or two of them that I'm very close to as a result of. But when we examine guys, we examine them in a number of different areas, and the place that we start is Scripture. Because we understand this, that if you don't know the Bible, I don't, we don't really care whether you have a good, solid theology or not, because that tells us that even though you have a good or solid theology, you have that good and solid theology simply because you've learned it, not because you've studied the Word of God, and it's what you've come to conclude yourself. But I will never remember this one particular examination. We almost always started it out with the same question, and that is this. How many times do you think that you have read slash studied through the Bible? We've never had anybody say, well, I've never done that. That on occasion we will hear someone say, well, I think I've studied through it, read through it once or twice. What I want to say to them is this, is if that is your perspective on Scripture, then you've got no business becoming a pastor or a preacher. I believe that the very greatest requirement or qualification for a teaching elder is that they have an insatiable hunger for the Word of God that nothing else will satisfy. that they are moved often to read it, to study it, to devour it over and over and over again, unceasingly. We need those men in pulpits who love the Word of God that much. The author of this book is discouraged because those he writes to should have, been, should have pressed on to real spiritual maturity at this point, but they haven't. They're still stuck in the elementary things. The ESV says this, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. to grow I mean this this is, this may be one of the most surprising chapters in the whole book because here he talks definitively about people who fall away And this is how he describes it. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, in other words, they've been exposed to the Word of God, they've understood the Word of God, so on and so on, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, which is the Word of God, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's 
It's amazing to us to hear this, that people that have done such things as this fall away. And when they do, he says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Because it seems as though they've committed what sounds almost like the unpardonable sin because they have re-crucified Christ. Now, let me just tell you, we always have to do this. We always have to balance the teaching of any particular book with the rest of the Scripture. We believe very strongly in the five points of Calvinism. Why? Because they're very clearly taught in Scripture, all of them. But what about the P and Tulip, the perseverance of the saints? In other words, once you're saved, you're always saved. You can't lose your salvation. Is this author here saying something contrary to that? Is he opening the door for the possibility that saved people can lose their salvation? Well, just remember this, that there are things in Scripture that sometimes are hard to understand and they're difficult to put in the context of everything else. But that is why we live and breathe on the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. That what is being said here is not contrary to what is said in other places. This particular passage in Hebrews is used very often as a proof text that true believers can actually lose their salvation. And there are a lot of people out there in the Christian community today that believe that. There are a lot of believers today who believe that true believers can lose their salvation. They can actually fall away. And if you take this verse on the surface and you you take it out of context and you don't weigh it in the balance of Scripture, you might come to that conclusion. That's why we abide by the rule and the law that Scripture interprets Scripture. There is an abundance of texts that demonstrate to us that once you are saved, you are saved. Really and truly, forever, eternally. The problem is there are times when people think that they're saved or they claim to be saved when in reality they're just not. And when they fall away, it looks as if an actual real believer has left the church. In other words, it's very, I'm not going to say it's easy, but there are events, there are times when people draw very close, but they just don't quite make it. And then when they fall away, it looks as though a believer has actually left the fold of the church.
we know that is not what is meant here because it does not hold up to the balance of Scripture. What he's talking about here is people who come into the church, who come very close, they participate in the church, in worship, they participate in this and they participate in that, and, and probably most of the people in the church consider them to be part of the church, etc., 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 but eventually, for one reason or another, they leave, they fall away. They don't persevere. I mean, there, are, there are, are, are a number of ways of, of determining whether faith is real and genuine or not, but one of those is this, is real faith perseveres. And we must understand something, that God is in the middle of this. It's God that is separating out the goat from the sheep to purify his church. He will do that. I don't want anybody to walk out of this room this morning thinking, I just cannot have confidence, absolute confidence of my salvation. Because that is not what we're talking about here at all. There is real legitimate affirmation. There's an abundance, like I said before, of, of scriptures that teach the perseverance of the saints. Over and over again. Let me just read a couple of those for you. This is from the very book of Hebrews itself. And let me just tell you this, that when you're studying a book and there's some difficult aspect that you come across or whatever the best place that you need to, to look first of all is in the rest of the book does the rest of the book help you understand what's going on here without jumping to some other book first this is Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. For by a single offering, that is of themselves, talking about Jesus, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So if you're truly being sanctified, you are being perfected by Christ. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, this securing eternal redemption. In other words, when Christ died, your redemption was guaranteed. The Apostle John alludes to the fact that none of the elect will fall away. But at the same time, there will be those who are not elect who will. He says this. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Jesus, Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the kingdoms. 
Let both, and that is the, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the tares first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So it should not surprise any of us that at least on occasion there are tares in the wheat of the church. Jesus says there will be. So what we have to conclude is this is what is said here in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 applies to those who are part of the visible church but are not part of the invisible church. Only God knows for certain those who truly believe. You know, when we, when we receive members, the, the elders receive members here, what we're looking for from you is a credible profession of faith. And that was the basis upon every person who's a member of this church, how the basis on which they became a member of Springs Church. But the only thing we can do is go on what you tell us, what you say to us. We can't look into the depths of your heart and discern whether your profession of faith is real and legitimate or not. There have been a few times over the years when someone's come to, to seeking membership in the church where we've had to deny. It hasn't happened very often. I can only think of maybe two or three or four times in all of these years. When people have come and they haven't made a real, what sounds like a real legitimate profession of faith. They come and their testimony is all about their own doing. Their own works. Not faith in Jesus, but what I've done for God. That's why I deserve to be a married sheriff. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about faith in Christ. That's it. You have to have it to be a part. If you don't, you're not. In reality, it's where we are right now. Only God himself knows for certain. We can't discern anybody's heart. I've actually known a few people, and I emphasize a few people, have participated in church or churches for a lengthy period of time, very involved, even an officer, one that I can think of, and this, that, and the other, who have eventually fallen away and denied the faith. The whole point here is that person didn't actually believe to begin with. They profess faith, but it was not real faith. Why would somebody do something like that? Why would somebody want to be a part of a Christian? Maybe, maybe they like to be around nice people, and Christians do tend to be on the nice side sometimes. Maybe they just feel like they're all alone, and they want a group of people, a captive audience to be a part of. Evidently, according to the author of Hebrews, and I would say Jesus Christ himself, 
that in doing what is, what is described here is this. He, the author says, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are once again crucifying the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. Could that be what the unpardonable sin is? What do you think? The unforgivable sin, could that possibly be somewhat of a description of it? Possibly. I'm not going to tell you it is definitively, but it's a good possibility. We know that there is a sin that God will not forgive. The scriptures make it very clear. And I want to remind us this morning, too, that when unbelievers leave the church, it's an act of God. It's a means he uses to purify and preserve the invisible church. God sifting the wheat. Later on, the author of Hebrews will write this, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? And that's where he utters these words. It's fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember the acrostic tulip? Remember how it ends? What the P stands for? Perseverance of the saints. That's what we're talking about. Saints persevere. Why? Well, it's for a lot of reasons, but one of those is because the Holy Spirit continues to indwell us or indwells us. This person who left was never indwelt by the Spirit. There's a sense in which God guarantees our salvation by that. That the Holy Spirit indwelling us is like God putting His real definitive brand or label or whatever on us declaring that we in fact are his Paul says this he says he who began a good work in you will be will bring it to completion or be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ. No exceptions. There's something I want to make very clear this morning. I would imagine that the majority of believers in the church today believe that perseverance is a product of our own abilities. In other words, we persevere because we hold on to Christ. 
That picture, my friends, is not painted in the Bible at all. Perseverance, our perseverance, is a product of God's work in us. God causing us, enabling us to persevere. That same old Holy Spirit. You know, when the Holy Spirit indwells in us, he's not inactive. It's not like he goes in there and goes to sleep or just sits there and doesn't do anything. He's active. He's moving in us. He's helping us come to places where we need to be. But I would imagine that the majority of believers in the church today believe that your salvation rests upon your own ability to hold on to Jesus. You don't have to look very far to find that kind of teaching and that kind of thinking. But that's not what the Bible tells us. What the Bible tells us is this, is that we persevere for one reason, and that's because God holds us. It's not a matter of us holding on to God. It's a matter of God holding on us. Which way would you rather it be? Almighty God (laughs) holding on to you or little feeble you holding on to him? Which one would you rather have? Which one makes more sense to you? as to why you are here and you haven't been one of those who have stepped out. I don't know about you, but I take a whole lot of comfort in that whole idea. Boy, there's so much here, I'll tell you what. What he's doing here is he's describing a special class of unbeliever. An unbeliever who's experienced in real and tangible ways the church, the household of God. They were enlightened. In other words, they've been instructed in the gospel and other things of God. So they can't claim absolute ignorance. It's not like some native living in deep, dark Africa that's never heard anything about Christ or the Bible or anything. They've even shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, that's, that's a little hard thing there to explain. I, you need to understand that. But we, but we have to let the Bible explain it for us. It's not my explanation. It's well, how does the Bible describe this or explain this for you and I? Because it sounds like It's saying that someone can have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit can just depart. Now we can't conclude that for a lot of reasons and one of the main reasons is this is the rest of Scripture says no to that. Okay, so remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. These people, they had been in the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
participate in spirit-led worship, possibly participated in spirit-led prayer. In other words, these are people, we're talking about this particular group of people are those who come so close that they can reach out and grab it or touch it, but they don't. They sat under gospel, biblical teaching, preaching. Spirit-led preaching. But they've fallen away. So what does that do for our assurance of salvation? The things we're talking about. It shouldn't affect it one iota. If anything else, it ought to encourage us. Because let me tell you this. We might fool other people that we can't fool God. And that's what we're talking about here. It's people who have try, been trying to fool God. And, and basically, they leave him no option but to show the rest who are truly gathered in the church, who are truly of the church, that this particular person doesn't fit in that category. Let me ask you this again. I think I already did once. Do you really want your salvation to depend upon your ability to hold on to God or his ability to hold on to you? We persevere simply because he perseveres. Our perseverance is a product of his perseverance. The gospel is a most amazing thing. I mean, it really is. There is absolutely nothing like it in the existence of mankind. Nothing comes close. The whole idea that a holy God will pay the price himself for the crimes committed against him by fallen sinners like us is the most remarkable message that anyone could ever hear or tell anyone else. Don't you dare ever let, you, let anyone tell you that Christianity is just another religion. It is not. It is absolutely unique in a lot of ways. We persevere because Jesus perseveres. 
And as long as he does that, he will carry us right along. And we have no reason to ever think or doubt that he's going to stop. We have, in fact, his promise that he won't. Reflected in what we're about to take part in this morning. The Lord's Supper. We're called to remember. Basically, what are we supposed to remember? Well, we're supposed to remember Christ. This is all about Jesus. It's obviously a reflection of his crucifixion. The giving of his blood and the death of his body. For what reason? To save you. And let me tell you this. This is one of the things that being reformed really gives us an advantage in regard to, and that is this, is I can say this to you this morning, and that is when Jesus was dying on the cross, he was thinking about Bucky and Maybell. And Ollie and Butch, that you are on his mind and on his heart specifically, particularly, And he formed a relationship with you in that act that cannot be broken by any man-made device. Period. You are his. He claimed you. He paid for you. And because those things are true, he will never let you go. Never, ever, ever you will persevere because he perseveres for you. Did you come up with anything better? Seriously. The gospel doesn't just blow your socks off every time you think about it, then I'm not sure you understand what it is. It's the most amazing message. It's the most un, almost unbelievable message that you could ever hear. That God would do what he did for people who are absolutely and completely undeserving of it. Motivated by love. This, my friends, is real love like nothing else. So the praise team